This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. The Cappadocian fathers were able to remove, by, through their writings, the, the, the cumulative effort to help remove some of the Unitarian connotation to that Nicene term, homoousios. What they did is they drew a very careful distinction between usia, the one essence of the Godhead, and the three persons, the hypostases. So they, they made a distinction between the one essence and the three persons. And that helped people, that distinction, that technical distinction, Help, help remove the, the, the tension that some felt with this term homoousios. Very crucial. So they stressed that God was one in essence and three in persons. Generally, the Cappadocians did for Greek Eastern theology what Tertullian had done earlier for Latin theology when he, that is Tertullian, spoke of one substantia and three personae. One essence, three persons. One substantia. So there's a certain parallel here between Tertullian and the Cappadocian fathers. They both hold both ideas. The one essence and the three persons. They use different language different technical terms, but the ideas were essentially the same. And that helped people who feared the homoousios term. In particular, Gregory of Nazianzus played an important role. This Gregory. He played an important role at Constantinople. His story goes like this. Gregory of Nazianzus. It's the one that wasn't a brother. His story begins, at least this episode, in 379 AD. Gregory, very talented individual, had taken on a small congregation in the city of Constantinople. And what is significant about this is that of all the churches in Constantinople, his church alone remained true to the Nicene formulation. He alone upheld Nicene orthodoxy in the capital of the empire, the Eastern Empire. Incidentally, there's a little practical application here. 
It's not always the size of your congregation that counts. I'm, I'm incidentally very, very serious about that. Uh, I hope that people don't come out of this seminary thinking that somehow the number of people you have in your congregation is a measure of your success. Gregory of Nazianzus, in his efforts, suggests otherwise. Here's a case, perhaps, an example where church history can encourage us in the right direction. Uh, evangelicals, I think, are infected all too often with the disease of numbers. And I, I have nothing against large congregations. Uh, may the Lord bless each of your congregations. But that is not the standard. Uh, you can please the Lord in a small congregation. And that is valuable. And if you're faithful, it will certainly please the Lord. If you, if you think that perhaps I'm not an advocate of church growth in the technical sense of, of that particular movement, you're right. I don't think you can manufacture growth. Statistics and all that kind of information will not, in the final analysis, lead to true growth. Uh, sometimes I tell people who, who are worried about that, I say, when somebody asks you, is your church growing? And obviously, when people ask that question, they're mostly talking about numbers. And I always encourage people to say, yes. But it's growing spiritually. Let's hope. So, spiritual growth is really important. That's, that's the issue for pastors, missionaries, people who stay at home, do whatever. Okay, sermon over. So, Gregory of Nazianzus and his small little congregation laboring away alone, upholding Nicene Orthodoxy. Things go well for him. There is a new emperor in the east. Notice how these guys keep falling off the log. It's, it's amazing. There's a new emperor of the east, Theodosius I. Theodosius I. And the good news about Theodosius I is that he is an upholder of Nicene Orthodoxy. In fact, he's pretty serious about it. And the good thing, in addition to his uh, upholding of Nicene Orthodoxy, is the fact that he has a reign of more than a couple of years. His reign lasts a total of 16 years. So he is able to implement his more Nicene kinds of ideas. And he takes, actually, I, I should admit that he takes a pretty heavy hand to make sure that Nicene orthodoxy uh, is maintained in the East. Uh, there's another lesson there. Uh, sometimes the people who have the right doctrine are not always the nicest people. The Lord uses them to be sure. 
but I also hate that. There's something desperately wrong if our theology is right, but our life is not. I would argue fervently that you don't have your theology right if your life doesn't reflect it. True theology makes a difference. And, and I think I'm prepared to go to my grave on that one. I really, really firmly believe that. Uh, it's not good enough to make an A in my class in Systematics 1. If it doesn't penetrate your heart and your life, then you don't know theology. Theodosius attains to the throne in 379. Theodosius I becomes emperor of the East in 379. Well, there's a complicated story here. What happens is Valens, uh, in the, he, he succeeds Valens in the East. But there is another emperor in the West, Gratian. But, but I have it. Who, who succeeded Valentinian. That's right. No, it is, basically. It is. Yes, okay. yes, basically. But the crucial issue, I mean, the hot place is more in the east. That's where people, where the things are getting tense. At any rate, uh, Theodosius I decides to issue an edict. And it is an edict in which he insists that all of his subjects confess the Nicene Creed. You better affirm it or he will punish you. Again, I repeat, he was a little heavy-handed with his orthodoxy. In the East, in the Eastern Empire, part of the Empire. You remember we talked earlier on about the, the Tetrarchy, how uh, things were divided up sometimes into, into the two east and west and sometimes subdivisions. Sub, uh, well, one of the other things besides being heavy-handed and insisting that everybody hold to Nicene Orthodoxy, in addition to that, Theodosius appoints, well, you can't see it, Gregory of Nazianzus, bishop the patriarchal bishop of Constantinople. Remember now, when I say patriarchal bishop, that means he's a bishop higher than other bishops. And there were certain key cities where there was a patriarchal bishop. Constantinople was one of them. And so he goes from a small congregation, Greg of Nazianzus does, to now becoming not just a bishop, but a patriarchal bishop with a mandate to encourage and promote Nicene Orthodoxy. And so we see that after nearly 40 years, Constantinople, which had been dominated, as I say, for 40 years by Arians, suddenly Nicene Orthodoxy enters into Constantinople. And so in order to give legal support to his changes, these edicts that Theodosius has issued, he decides to call a church council. 
And that will give legal force to his edicts. And so the council met at Constantinople in 381. 150 bishops from all parts attended with Gregory of Nazianzus presiding. 150 bishops. Now, no, really no new doctrinal formulations came out of Constantinople. No new doctrinal formulations came out of Constantinople. But the main thing that happened there is that they reaffirmed the Nicene Creed. So Constantinople, and you will, I'll say this again, is very closely associated with the Council of Nicaea. Constantinople reaffirms Nicaea. They also did one other thing. They expanded upon one aspect of the Creed of Nicaea. That is, the part that dealt with the Holy Spirit. So Constantinople essentially reaffirms Nicaea and then elaborates on the person of the Holy Spirit. Now this is, this is significant in church history because up to this point, despite the fact that the apostles and the early church had all affirmed uh, the existence of the Holy Spirit, it was not until the end now of the 4th century that the Holy Spirit comes in for specific attention and where the question of His personality and divinity are stressed. At Nicaea, the creed simply said, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's it. We believe in the Holy Spirit. Now clearly, the doctrine of the Son uh, was sort of the first step as the church grappled with fundamental questions. And I suppose there is a priority in understanding who, the, who Jesus was. Well, now it's time in 381 to consider the Holy Spirit. Here's how that uh, part came up at Constantinople. There had been a bishop of Constantinople by the name of Macedonius. M-A-C-E-D-O-N-I-U-S. And Macedonius had said some very disturbing things about the Holy Spirit. He described the Holy Spirit as, quote, a creature. He described the Holy Spirit as like an angel. And when he talked about the Holy Spirit, he said he is subordinate to the Son. Now, these are not very flattering comments about the third person of the Trinity. And the Orthodox responded by defending, in effect, the homoousios of the Holy Spirit. 
that the Holy Spirit is of the same essence as the Father and the Son. And again, the Cappadocians were at the forefront in the battle with the Macedonians. The Cappadocians again stressed the deity of the Holy Spirit. Now the council at Constantinople explicitly condemned the Macedonians, but only implicitly, underscore that word, implicitly ascribed homoousios to the Holy Spirit. I say implicitly because you will not find that term in at the Council of Constantinople. But when you look at what it says about the Holy Spirit, it's pretty clear that the spirit of homoousios in relationship to the Holy Spirit is there. This was the major modification of the Nicene Creed done at Constantinople. Where the Nicene Creed had said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, listen to what they said at Constantinople. We believe in the Holy Spirit, who is Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. A much more elaborate description. Uh, and again, although the term homoousios is not specifically spelled out in, at Constantinople, it does seem to be the intention. Consider, if you will, the Holy Spirit is called the Lord at Constantinople. That is a divine title. He is also called Lord and life giver, suggesting that He is a creator, is the creator. The Holy Spirit, in the third place, is described as coming from the Father, which is also the same description ascribed to the Son. Again, implying uh, equality with the Son and the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped along with the Father and the Son. So, uh, it's generally understood then that Constantinople now places significant emphasis on the deity of the Holy Spirit. Although, it doesn't necessarily use those technical terms. The other incidental thing I should mention to you about Constantinople is that they leave off the anathema that had attached itself to the Nicene Creed. That was, was left off. It is this reaffirmation and modification of the Nicene Creed at Constantinople that is most often called the Nicene Creed. Some people want to call it the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. I can't say that. Most often when you read the Nicene Creed, it comes, it really comes to us not in the original form, but in the form as modified at Constantinople. 
Now, that's a good question for an exam. The, the, the Nicene Creed that we normally see is the one that comes to us through the modification at Constantinople. That's what we mean by the Nicene Creed. Any questions? Yes. Mm hmm. No, I think I mean, you have to realize that in terms of function, the Holy Spirit basically applies the work of Christ to the individual. That's his function. But the Holy Spirit is also fully, fully God. And God is to be worshipped. So there's no, uh, as far as I know, any hesitation about acknowledging that the third person of the Trinity is to be worshipped. Like, um, for example, maybe this Well, no, I, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. You hear something kind of interesting, and that is that Calvin himself uh, is known by some as the theologian of the Holy Spirit because Calvin gave considerably more attention to the Holy Spirit than had been done by many others before him. He talks a lot about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So Reformed theology historically has been one group that has tried not to minimize the Holy Spirit if, if, if we take Calvin as, as an example. So... Uh, Put that in your, as, as a professor of mine said, put that in your Calvinistic pipe. Number eight, Augustine on the Trinity. I'll be brief here, but it's hard to think about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity without having just a little bit about Augustine. Uh, he really is the capstone on the historical development of this doctrine. Uh, he's the one in whom the church historically has come with a fully developed doctrine of the Trinity. His most famous work is entitled De Trinitate, or On the Trinity. And it ranks as one of his most important writings. You have the Confessions in the City of God and De Trinitate are three of his biggest <coughs> Sellers. In this work, uh, Augustine accepts the idea of the triune God. He is a triune God who is distinct in three persons, yet one substance. Distinct in persons, but one in substance. Here's the phrase, una substantia tres personae. One substance, three persons. Again, this follows on the Cappadocian Fathers' distinctions 
as well as that of Tertullian. Let me summarize some of the key uh, features of Augustine's view. And again, at some point, he's not going to differ so much from some of the others, but he sort of puts the, the lid on this doctrine, brings it to its final expression. First, uh, we're sort of in here. This, these are the key elements of Augustine's doctrine of the Trinity. These are very general. The first is, he believes there is an absolute unity in the Trinity. God is one. Now, one thing about Augustine that's also significant here is that, that all idea of subordination of the Son and the Spirit to the Father is eliminated. You don't find any latent subordinationism in Augustine. Even with Tertullian, as great as he was, you still find a little element of that subordination. The Son is somehow not subordinate to the Father. But with Augustine, that is, is completely expelled. Whatever can be said of God the Father can be said equally of each of the three persons. Listen to this. Augustine writes, Not only is the Father not greater than the Son in respect to divinity, but Father and Son together are not greater than the Holy Spirit. And no single person of the three is less than the Trinity itself. So for Augustine, the three persons are not three separate Entities, because the substance of each person is identical with that with the others. So there's a strong emphasis on unity. Whatever can be said of the Holy Spirit can be said of the Father. And whatever can be said of the Father can be said of the Son and the Holy Spirit. A real strong stress on the essence. Secondly, Augustine stresses that the distinction of the three persons is grounded in terms of their relationship within the Godhead. In order to understand the threeness of the Trinity, says Augustine, you've got to think about it in terms of relationship. Talk about the Trinity and each of the three persons. They are identical in substance, but they are distinguished by their relationship. So, for example, the Father is distinguished from the Son because the Father begat the Son. So there is a distinction in terms of relationship. The third feature is that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of both the Father and the Son. Augustine writes in his gospel, his commentary on the Gospel of John, he says, The Holy Spirit is not the spirit of one of them, but of both. So for Augustine, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of both the Father and the Son. His view with regard to the Holy Spirit came to be known as double procession. That is not double predestination, that is double procession. And according to Augustine's view, 
the Holy Spirit, quote, proceeds from the Father and the Son. It is the last part of that what I just said, and the Son, which in Latin is filioque, filioque. This term here, filio means son, and k means and, and the son. This is has some relationship to what is called the filioque or filioque uh, controversy that goes on for some time. Do you, do you have a comment or question? Uh, that happens again. I'm going to comment. That happens at the Council of Toledo. But I'll, I'll, I'll mention that. Filio means son. And the Q-U-E on the end is the word and. In Latin, you can, you can put the, the word, if you have a series of words, you can put the word and, you can attach it to one of those words. So it means and the son or and son. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. They all accept that. But now, Augustine accepts the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and Filioque and the Son. What was the Filioque in reference to up there before Nicene? Well, I, I started to say something about it up there, but I decided to say something about it down here. <laughs> now, this and the Son or Filioque is added to the Nicene Constantinople Creed by the Council of Toledo in 589 A.D. What you're seeing here is that these subsequent councils go back and they modify the existing creeds. So let's just put this clearly in mind. Constantinople goes back to Nicaea and elaborates on the Holy Spirit, right? So it modifies the, the, the Nicaean Creed. Now the Council of Toledo goes back to the Constantinople Creed and modifies it in terms of this phrase, and the Son. And so now when you look at almost any Nicene Creed, it will say the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So, Council of Toledo. As you're probably aware, the Eastern churches rejected that phrase, and the Son, or filioque. Although the church in the West affirmed it. And because we're in the West, you find that in our Nicene creeds. Just a minute. Do you mean that there was a certain separation of this council in Toledo between Eastern and Western Church? Toledo was in Spain, which is in the West. And so the Western churches, by and large, accepted this phrase. They wanted to make sure that the Holy Spirit was viewed as proceeding from the Father and the Son. In the East, they, they hesitated about that. And in fact, it becomes one of the great issues in 1054 when the Eastern Church separated from the Western Church. Uh, the East said, because you have this, this phrase in your, in your Nicene statement, uh, we, we don't like that. And so that's one of the reasons we're breaking away. Well, the Roman Empire has, goes through a number of metamorphoses throughout time. I mean, you can talk about the Holy Roman Empire up through the 16th century, even. But the old Roman Empire essentially ceased 
at about the what sixth century. Well, again, at this point, we don't have an official separation of the East and the West. What we do have are churches in the eastern side of the empire and the western side of the empire. And what we're seeing is that already in these early stages, you have different characteristics beginning to emerge from the churches in the east and different characteristics from the churches in the west. So culturally and theologically, there are some differences that can be traced back even to the early church, although a formal separation doesn't occur until later. Okay, one last comment about... Uh, Augustine. And if you do any reading of Augustine at all, one of the things you will note is that he always has these these analogies about the Trinity. Everything he sees are in terms of threes. Uh, and he will find all kinds of, of what some have called psychological analogies of the Trinity. And he looks inside man or in human experience to find analogies of the Trinity. Uh, they are everywhere. Uh, he'll talk about love, for example, and he can divide it into three component parts. A lover, the object of love, and then the bond of love. So for him, he, 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 his whole world is divided into threes. And one, uh, scholars have noted this for some time, uh, that he has this tendency to see everything in Trinitarian terms and finding all kinds of analogies in human experience. Uh, now, he doesn't believe that these analogies necessarily explain the Trinity. Uh, in fact, they probably deepen the mystery of the Trinity. Uh, at any rate, we can talk about Augustine finally of, of really essentially uh, bringing the formal development of the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity to its essential completion. The great strides were made uh, before Augustine, but he is the, the cherry on top and articulates it in a way that has become standard. Okay, that gets us historically through the Trinity. And I hope you sense, again, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. The early church is struggling with some of the most profound questions. And I, I think just as a, as a practical question for, for all of us, is there's probably real value for you as an individual to go back and to work through those questions as best you can. Uh, some people feel like that you know the Trinity is something you, sh you shouldn't investigate because we've got it all set up, we've got our creedal statements, and so we sort of just accept those. I don't buy that. I think it's useful Sometimes it'll be perhaps even disturbing. But it's good to go back and to rethink through those fundamental questions like the nature of the Trinity. You never, and I'm not advocating you somehow step outside your faith and then go back and analyze and rethink through a fundamental doctrine like the Trinity. I'm saying stay within the boundaries of faith and go back and think through those fundamental things. There's value in grappling with that kind of question. Theology and grappling theologically with those kinds of questions, I think, is a good thing. So, 
Don't just simply rely upon what Augustine said. Read Augustine, but think for yourself, biblically. Okay. What's that? Uh, that was uh, extemporaneous. Uh, freeform. Yeah. Let's move now to Christology. And yes, now we are in intro. You can write that down, yeah. In stating the relationship of Christ to the Father, and then later, subsequently, relationship to the Holy Spirit, it also became necessary to ask questions in particular about the humanity and the divinity of Christ. And in particular, to take that a step further, is to understand how it was that Christ was human and divine in one person. If the Trinity is complicated and profound, so is the nature of Christ. And just in the same way that, that Christians of the other church struggled to come up with a right understanding of the Trinity, particularly the Father and the Son, they struggled for a while to understand how it was that Jesus was fully God, fully man, in one person. I would argue that these two doctrines historically are connected. One sort of gives rise to the other. And in fact, historically, the settlement of one followed pretty quickly with the study and thinking about the other. Trinity and Christology. Um, and of course, this is a question about Christ. His nature is crucial to our understanding of Christianity. I mean, the idea of redemption Is In order to understand redemption, we've got to understand the Redeemer. Who was He? What did He do? Uh, how we can understand this. So it's very important. So these four elements, just as at the outset, are things that I want you to keep in your mind as we move along in our doctrine of Christ. The Orthodox view says that Jesus is true God... Secondly, that He is true man. Thirdly, that He is one person. And fourthly, that the divine and the human in Him remain distinct. It's true God, true man, one person, and yet the divine and human in Him remain distinct. Now, when we think back on the Arian controversy, when the Arians were debating with the Orthodox, uh, they were looking at Christ, particularly in his pre-temporal mode, as the second person of the Trinity. So there's a pre an eternal element. It's, it's Jesus before time that is it in, at, at focus, in focus in those discussions. But when it comes to the Christological controversies of the 4th century, basically the Christ in view is the Christ in time. The Christ in His temporal existence. 
Now, it's pretty clear from the Arian controversy, the result of that is the acknowledgement of the deity of Christ. But then there were new questions raised about how to understand this deity of Christ. Two schools of thought emerged. Two schools of thought. The Alexandrian and the Antiochian schools of thought. Now these are not always absolutely uh, clearly defined. These are schools of thought that are tendencies. And so bear that in mind. In grappling with how do you integrate the two natures of Christ? How do you relate His divinity with His humanity and do that within one person? It was perhaps inevitable that some people would emphasize the distinctiveness of the divine and the human in Jesus, while others would emphasize the unity of those two natures in Christ. And that's what happened in these two schools of thought. Although both the Alexandrian and the Antiochian schools of thought both affirmed the humanity of Christ and His divinity, they had different stresses. The Alexandrians stressed the unity of the divine and human nature of Christ. The Alexandrians stressed the unity of the divine and the human in Christ. They tended to focus on His deity as a result. Because they focused on the unity, the tendency of the Alexandrian school was to focus on Christ's deity. So they move in that direction generally. The Antiochians wanted to maintain the distinctiveness of the two natures. And so they tended generally to focus on Christ's humanity. Alexandrians focus on the deity. The Antiochians tend to focus on Christ's humanity. Uh, the Alexandrians argue that there was a sort of commingling of the two natures of Christ so that the two natures became one nature. The Alexandrians stressed a commingling of two natures so that they became one. The Antiochians, they kind of separated the two natures, the divine and the human in Christ. And so that they tended to see that there was no union between the human and the divine nature, but rather a permanent association. So rather than a stress on the union of the human and the divine in Christ, the Antiochians saw some sort of permanent association. Now, the development of Christology develops in terms of or through a number of controversies. And the first controversy is the so-called Apollinarian controversy.
This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.